Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the show today, we have Dr. Liz Hughes-Fong. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, before we get started, just do a, just do a quick uh, acknowledgement of uh, that I'm producing this broadcast on the land of the Tlam and Homoko, Comox, and Klehus First Nations, uh, which were uh, one nation before we settlers came and separated them all into reserves. Um, uh, folks will know I, I talk a lot about the Tlam and First Nation because they're the ones that are kind of closest to here. And Texade Island, which is this sort of Gulf Island that I live on in between Vancouver Island and the mainland. For folks that don't live in this area, it's about sort of two and a half hours as the crows flies and kind of northwest of Vancouver um, on, on the strait in between uh, the large island on our west coast. Um, and Tlaman, the Tlaman Nation, I think, has probably the greatest claim to the lands here. Um, I, re- I learned recently that there's a, a bay called Pocahontas Bay um, kind of on the east side of the island. No, the west side of the island, sorry. And uh, east side. And it, uh, it, uh, it's actually a, a, a designated Tlaman lands. There's a sign up there and everything. This is Tlaman lands. Got to get permission to come on and so on and so forth. And a lot of the Tlaman kids do uh, kind of... Uh, um, sort of history lessons and and learning the ways of the land and they go to this bay and do a bunch of really cool things, which I learned a couple of days ago. But I learned it in a really unfortunate way because I learned it because it was in the news. It actually made it into our um, uh, provincial newscast because it was vandalized um, by uh, uh, you know some clearly racist folks, lots of derogatory Writings of the signs, literal shotgun holes in the sign. Sign was ripped down, just, uh, just horrible. And and you know, there's presumption that well, it couldn't be a local, it could never be a local. But I don't know. Uh, I do know it's hunting season right now on our island, and there's a lot of interesting cats coming over here to, you know, with some some odd stuff happening. But it's just really sad and really, uh, really, 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 really disappointing that. Um, that we're seeing that kind of stuff happening here. Uh, so interesting to learn more about that. And certainly once, uh, you know, the Tlaman folks have been able to, you know, clean that up and repair, I definitely do want to make contact with them and get permission to go on those lands and learn a little more about them. And on a related note, I discovered that today, uh, Drew Blaney, um, who, you know, a lot of listeners are getting used to this guy named Drew Blaney, and they have no idea who he is. He's the kind of cultural coordinator for the Tlaman Nation. I had the pleasure of meeting a couple of times. He does culture nights in, Tla- in, in the Tlaman Nation community, um, um, which up until recently have only been open to um, um, members of the community. But it sounds like, and I got I got to message him and double check. But he he posted on Facebook today that he's doing starting the culture nights up again. Um, tonight um, and it's where they'll do like ceremonies and songs and you get to learn the language and all that sort of thing and it said he said open to everyone this time so I'm pretty pumped that I'm finally gonna potentially have I'm not, it's not gonna happen today but um, but there, there might be potentially an opportunity for uh, you know 
building that connection with the, 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 the indigenous community here. Um, and I think that kind of will play a sort of a pseudo segue uh, into some of the discussion we're having today. Um, um, so it's grateful to be here. So uh, folks will know Liz from, um, well, they may or may not know Liz, depending on kind of, kind of uh, what, what sort of areas you're into. But if you've been following any of the, the work around sort of diversity, equity, inclusion, and cultural competence and so on and so forth in our field, uh, the field of behavior analysis, um, <clears throat> there hasn't been much. Um, and, uh, but the first sort of name that has popped up for a lot of folks was this Dr. Elizabeth Hughes Farm. Um, and in fact, if you caught episode, I think it was 43 or 44, it was a, the two-part episode with Joe Lushishan. Uh, Joe actually references you um, in that episode as sort of he, he as 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 he's I can't, I can't quote him exactly, but he said he was just really heartened by some of the the young voices that are that are are are, are in our field right now that are doing some really amazing things, um, you know, to kind of um, um, you know. Uh, you know, I don't know what the term is, but, you know, reform or, or, or expand or grow our field in, in ways that it should have done a long time ago. But uh, in our field, and again, this is, I have to remember, I have to keep remembering that this is my own perspective and which is also plays a role in sort of a, a lot of, a lot of your work. Uh, but from my own perspective, there's been very little done in this in our field, uh, uh, and most of it was done sort of after the George Floyd murder, um, and almost seems like um, uh, well, I won't get into that yet. I, I want to get get into a little bit of, of kind of your origin story, kind of how you got in the field, but uh, just interesting that um, uh, you know Liz's work started well well before George Floyd and continues well after. And there's some really good resources kind of going back a little bit before that I don't think folks have tapped into. And so we're going to touch on some of those today, as well as talk about, um, you know, some of the work, work she's doing now. Before we do that, maybe Liz, you could just sort of give a bit of an origin story, kind of how you got into the field of behavior analysis, and then kind of how you got into the specific area of cultural competence, and particularly because... I have seen a lot of folks doing research in this area uh, now, um, more so now, um, uh, a lot and a lot is a relative term. Uh, but it looked like it looked like just looking at your sort of portfolio of research, this is almost all you've done for research. Um, and not a lot of folks can say that. Not, most folks will say, oh, yeah, they wrote one article here on this and that, but then they went back to you know verbal behavior and you know, FCT and whatever they were doing, uh, but they threw in an article on on cultural stuff. Uh, but this has just been your work, which is, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, being as young as you are in, in the field, you're still, you know, you know, probably the most knowing, which is, which is troubling for our field. I was going to say that sounds scary. <laughs> exactly. Very scary. Um, um, I mean, I'm glad folks like Joe were aware of your work, and hopefully they've done some of that stuff on their own. But it is scary. But we'll get to, we'll get to some of those fears in a bit. Let maybe just so you know, a little bit of your story and how you got into this work. Sure. Um, when I was in college, I was working in a home program doing verbal behavior, and never thought that I'd be an ABA. Um, I hmm. went for my master's degree in school counseling, 
And I thought Mm -hmm. I was going to be a secondary school counselor, but then the job market wasn't good. And um, the person I was working for, a mentor of mine, owned an ABA company. And she said, you're a behavior analyst. Because I showed up to the interview with this giant binder of all the work that I had been doing since, I don't know, undergrad. Um, So went and got my BCBA and then uh, continued with school and got my PhD in clinical psych with a concentration in forensics. Damn. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) And as far as DEI things, um, I'm adopted. So I think that had a significant influence on my interests. Um, I also Mm. have done most of my clinical work um, in urban areas working with low SES populations. And at the time, I was finding that the articles that were um, out there that I was reading for class didn't really fit the population that I was working with. Like they're talking about doing FA and I didn't have an, an empty room to run an FA or, you know, make sure that you have your closet of uh, reinforces the, your token economy. And I was like, but who's paying for these? Because the school districts I was working in wasn't paying for them. And if you look at the ethics code, would that be considered buying a gift for my students? And it was just mm. a little complex. And um, I was like, there has to be someone else who's struggling with these same issues. So let me try to put some of my thoughts on paper. Mm. Right on. Okay, so... What a pick apart your, <laughs> your 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 abstract brief um, sort of origin story. So you you happened to be working in an ABA clinic, but you didn't work didn't know you were you weren't really into ABA. Um, you wanted to be a counselor. Um, was there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of, uh, of roles out there. Did you actually get your master's degree in counseling though? Correct. Yeah, I have a master's yeah. degree in. Counseling with a certification in secondary school counseling. Ah, very good, very good. And then, uh, and then from there, you would have just done like the, the the coursework or whatever, and then got your BCBA. It's basically kind of that one. So, so this person said you're a behavior analyst, <laughs> um, and you went, "Yeah, you're right. I am. I got your BCBA." Or like, or what? Like, what kind of happened in between there? That, that, that sort of went, or are you just uh, easily convinced? Uh, well, I guess I looked at the job market and um, ha- being a school counselor with your BCBA have given you, given me a good edge in the job market. And I was right. familiar with ABA therapy. Um, so I was like, all right, sounds sounds like a good thing to do for a year or two, you know, to boost my credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I started the ABA coursework, it was very different from counseling. Definitely more, mm-hmm. you know, database, black and white, which I yeah. actually appreciated um, so kind of never went back to counseling. I did get my, you know, doctorate in clinical psych, but my intention was to do assessments and not counseling mm. with that. But then, uh, started in academia sometime during that period and mm. stayed here. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And then, and then kind of, kind of started getting into doing some of this, this sort of cultural specific work. And it's funny because yesterday was Halloween and I was just thinking about um, how much I really enjoyed graphing my candy in elementary school. I don't know if anyone else had to do that, but it was like the highlight of my year. So maybe I was always meant to be a behavior analyst. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about graphing your candy. Like you separate it by types and then yeah. you put it in a, put in a bar graph and see, you know, what kind oh of candy gosh. you got the most of. 
So what, do, you, do you recall what some of the categories were? I think it was like... How you, how you coded your candy? I think it was, you know, by name, like Skittles, M&M's, right. things like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember separating out into categories. And and I, I'm sure many folks will agree that... And, and I don't think I see them anymore in, in, in being handed out. But, you know, those... The, the orange and yellow kind of candies that sort of have the Halloween sort of pictures on them that no one ever opens because they're gross. Um, they're, they're some sort of bizarre teeth-breaking <laughs> toffee that, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a Canadian thing. Um, I don't know if you guys have, uh, um, in the States, there's a, there's a similar sort of story of there's a bubble gum that looks like chiclets, but tastes like soap. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's also still on the on the shelves today, even though kids everywhere will will tell you they taste like soap, and they still get bought forever and ever. Anyway, so um, <laughs> this just categorize them, put, put the crappy candy on one side, and try to convince someone to eat those. Um, but I never got to graphic. So that's pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, all right, so. So then you got your your doctorate. I also, and and maybe I'll, I'll come back to this again later. But just on the side, it's interesting for you. You know, you, you liked the sort of black and white, uh, you know, you know, objective sort of um, angle of of ABA, and that really drew things to you. But on the other side of the coin, you know, and this isn't really this probably might be sort of indirectly related, but I feel like you know. We have all these. We have these requirements, sort of, to become certified. You have to have a master's degree in certain certain fields. Um, uh, but we're learning now with you know um, folks just starting to talk about things like compassionate care and, mm-hmm. and and therapeutic alliances and those sorts of things, which are sort of standard, you know, counseling kind of you know tenets. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it seems like you know, like personally, I think we should all have a master's degree in counseling to be a, to be a behavior analyst and then go take the, and then go take the courses in ABA and then go be a behavior analyst. Because I think, you know, it's interesting. Well, it wasn't sort of all that, all that exciting to you. Um, um, those skills are, are things that are really lacking in our field. And I think part of the reason we have, you know, so many that we're lacking in a lot of areas in our field. And I think, you know, and I think one of them is, 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 is the, is, is these, uh, cultural terms um when i say terms i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna explain what i mean by that in a second um uh um, essentially i i want i do have a question eventually that i want to there's a lot of terminology around cultural work um um that can get things get things confusing but point being is i think to have the skills to sort of achieve some a lot of the recommendations that you make in a lot of your papers you know I think having a counseling background could be really helpful. And I remember when I started in the field, feeling like I didn't fit in because I wasn't, you know, my master's degree wasn't in behavior analysis and, you know, I didn't study in a lab or anything like that. Um, so I spent some time talking to a mentor being like, do I fit in this field, you know, coming from this different background? And it's interesting that you say that because now I feel like a lot of the topics and issues that are being addressed at ABA kind of stem from counseling mm-hmm. and psychology. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of folks like yourself, you know, that had, you know, sort of master's degrees and other kind of helping fields mm-hmm. 
that felt like, well, I don't have a master's in applied behavioral analysis. I didn't attend an ABAI accredited university. So I'm less than, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because, you know, because of exactly just what you said. I mean, I think, I think, you know, I don't know if that was a fear thing maybe on, 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 on the part of sort of our field or, you know, that, that, that it, or, or sort of this preoccupation with mentalism um, and, and the idea that, you know, we just can't talk about anything without using behavior analytic jargon. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we're, you know, we're, we're, we're failures and losers and don't belong in the field. Um, Yeah. I'm not really sure what, what it is, but it's, it's interesting that, that, you know, our, our field sort of pushed out people that were, you know, had other skills, you know, but if you had just ABA behavior analytic skills and nothing else, then, then you're, then you're the champion. Um, in the article that I wrote with um, some colleagues, we looked at developing the cultural awareness skills of behavior analysts. There's a section yep. in there that talks about mindfulness and we actually got some pushback about using mindfulness and discussing it because even in the recent history, that wasn't something that people thought behavior analysts wanted to hear about. And now it's, we've, whole things on mindfulness <laughs> now it's now it's now it's huge it's, it's so true it's interesting this is a bit of a digression and i might get some letters for this um but i uh i joined abai for the first time in a while um and the reasons for not joining were nothing to do with sort of you know their stances on things or their policies or whatever it was just more I live in the boonies. I'm never going to make it to an ABAI conference. And, uh, you know, my university gives me all access to all, all the research for free. So there's not much in ABI. There wasn't much in ABAI for me. I decided to join this year because of the podcast and because of, um, uh, because I thought, you know, maybe I'll try to go to the conference this year because there's, you know, there seems to be a, a lot of really cool people going to these things. Certainly everybody that I had interviewed or tried to interview this year were all too busy because they were at all these conferences. Um, and so I thought it would just be a great opportunity for some networking and connecting. I hadn't been to an ABAI conference in 11 years. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's why I joined. Um, but the process of joining, number one, was just ridiculous. Um, um, I don't know if, I, I don't know if, I don't know how it is if you're, a full member. I imagine if you're a full member already um, and you're just renewing, it's just a matter of paying and renewing. Don't do anything. So I don't know sort of what the procedure for joining was like 10 years ago versus now. I don't have that perspective to, to sort of speak on it. But I do know that when I joined this year, if I wanted to be a full member and be able to vote, um, um, I, uh, I, uh, not only did I have to pay the most amount of money, um, which is a barrier in and of itself, but I had to fill out pages and pages of, of information. It's just interesting to me that 2022 ABAI still kind of has systemic pieces built in uh, that are, are, are reminiscent of, you know, 40 years past or 20 years past and, 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 and really not that welcoming. Uh, there was a side piece that I added as well. I won't get into sort of the, the position statement and whatnot, that's a different podcast, which I've done a few of already. Uh, but essentially, there, there's a position statement out right now that ABA members, ABI members are being asked to vote on. 
but you can only vote if you're a full member and fill out all that paperwork or be in and, and not only fill it all out, but actually have information that you can put in all the boxes. It's not just, it's not just your name and address and all this other stuff. It, there's a lot of stuff you got to put into that. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, experiences and, 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 you know, practices that you had to have engaged in, in your university program in order to be eligible to be a full member. So I go through all that. I'm now a full member and I can't vote on this position statement still um, as a full member because apparent and I, and I, so I wrote them. I said, dear Amy, I, I'm a full member. I've been a full member for, you know, over a month since this position statement came out. I didn't know there was a position statement coming out. So there wasn't even a sort of a sneaky part, part of, you know, motivation on my part to sort of join just to be able to vote on this. Um, and they said, according to our bylaws, you, I had to be a full member last year to vote on the position statement that came out this year. Uh, but last year I was, and I didn't realize, but last year I guess I was a chapter member, so I guess I was still a member. Uh, and being a chapter member negated that, so therefore I, I, I'm not welcome to vote on this statement. And it just sort of, again, speaks to sort of systemic issues kind of that are in our field, in our big associations. And I'm not saying, you know, the people at ABAI are racist or not. Some of them may be. I mean, I don't know. But um, uh, but I am saying that, you know, there's, um, you know, a lot of the policies and, and kind of work in our, and, 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 and bylaws and, and, and rules and assumptions and understandings in our field are still just so old and so you know, antiquated and so focused on kind of, you know, this narrow-minded idea of what analysis should look like. There's not really a question in there, <laughs> but I think it just, it just kind of, it just reminded me, your experience of sort of, you know, not feeling welcome reminded me of sort of how bizarre it is that our flagship association um, essentially weeds out a good chunk of the professional credentialed behavior analysts in our field from being voting members in that association that makes a whole bunch of decisions on our behalf. Um, and I think that's problematic and that's probably speaks to a lot of other areas. It probably speaks to academics. It probably speaks to, you know, you, you talk about there, in one part of your, one of your articles, you talk about an early recommendation about supporting more minority faculty and that sort of thing. Well, we know from the, you know, the interview that, and that, that, that was an older article of yours and we know, if, and, and based on even some older stuff. And we know that, you know, from the interview I did with Anita Lee, um, you know, uh, not a lot of that's changed. I mean, let's not talk about minority faculty. We can't even, you know, get equal opportunities for 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 non male faculty. So I don't know. There, there, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of lot of big issues to tackle here. And so, um, I'll stop ranting yeah. here. But uh, well, I actually but, wanted uh, to go back to your yeah, ABAI please, membership yeah. because I had yeah. applied. Um, several times to be a full member of ABAI and I was always denied mm. until last year. Last year was the first member they the first time they accepted me as a full member. And I was kind of like, wow. oh, I wonder what changed. Where now all of a sudden because mm -hmm. I haven't I hadn't published anything in, you know, a couple of years. So what's changed yep. now that I'm worthy enough per ABAI mm -hmm. to be a, a full member. That is interesting. So what was the reason you, you didn't get in? You know? No, I, I never asked for feedback. I assumed it was because um, my doctorate wasn't in behavior analysis. Um, but I had I had put um, that I had made significant contributions to the field as my rationale, um, and included some of the articles 
that I had written and yeah, and that still hadn't wasn't enough for 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 those years. But then this year, and then this year it was enough, yeah. even though yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Is it sub- there must be some subjectivity in there? Like I don't know. Like what? That that's that's bizarre. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that the reason that now they decide to take, make me a full member is because they're seeing how important and relevant DEI issues are. Whereas I guess in previous years, I guess they weren't considered as important, but. Well, it, it reminds me too of, so I'm looking at your article uh, with, uh, with, with, with Tadaka uh, in, uh, what's that, like 2013 maybe? A while ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's called, um, it's a great article, just, if, if you're like myself and you struggle to read 30 pages, um, it's a three-page article, um, and it's called Multicultural Alliance of Behavior Analysis Standards for Cultural Competence and Behavior Analysis. Um, and I understand now that this Multicultural Alliance of Behavior Analysis was the sort of the foundation for the cultural diversity SIG, is that right? Correct. In, in ABI? Yeah, well, as soon as um, I got my and, BCBA, I, I founded the um, Multicultural Alliance of Behavior Analysts, and then we rebranded. Oh, okay, and you, you founded it. Okay, it well, that's, that's, there you go. That's awesome. Um, and so that's 2013, that we, the, 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 which, which is not that long ago. <laughs> I mean, I mean, relative to, to life and, you know, and being a parent, having children and watching them grow, nine years is a long time. But, you know, uh, we only have to go back to 2013 to, to really first to really start seeing these conversations growing. I mean, there there was a reference to I think a couple of articles from earlier on. Mm-hmm. I know when you did your inside track interview, they talked about um, one in, one article from the 90s, um, which even even for me, you know, I mean, in the 90s, I was in high school and and we looked at we looked at the 90s as a really progressive time. And um, um, and but but clearly, clearly not. In, in, in a lot of ways, but there's there's one part in this article where you, where you reference, um, and again, this is you, rep- you reference ABAI's diversity policy from 2012. And now I don't know if it's different now. Maybe, hopefully it is. Um, um, and it says the Association for Behavior Analysis International seeks to be an organization comprised of people of different ages, races, nationalities, ethnic groups, sexual orientations, genders, classes, religions, abilities, and educational levels. The educational levels was an interesting one for me. <laughs> Um, um, ABI opposes unfair discrimination. It's interesting to sort of see sort of um, um, where we are now compared. Uh, it, so in this article, um, you kind of um, um, let's find the other two pages here. <laughs> you kind of break down um, um, a few different things. Uh, but before we get to that, I, I want to go back to some terms. Um, there's a lot of terms, um, in, in, in sort of the cultural discussion, there's cultural in and of itself, and there's sort of different definitions of culture. And I like that for this article, because a lot of people are using the Skinner definition in our field, um, um, which, you know, isn't a terrible definition. I'll, I'll just, I'll just read it out here. Um, the social environment is what's called the uh, social environment is what is called culture. It shapes and maintains the behavior of those who live in it. A given culture evolves as new practices arise, possibly for irrelevant reasons, and are selected by their contribution to the strength of the culture as it completes with the physical environment and other cultures. That's all right. 
<laughs> and you know, but again, it's 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 one perspective, and uh, you know, and I won't I won't tangent too much here, but I do struggle a bit with sort of basing everything off Skinner when these were just sort of ideas that a guy had, which some of them may be good, some of them may not be, but they're not. Lots of people have ideas. And so we don't necessarily have to just base all of our conversations on one person's idea. And so you actually go on to say, for this article, you're going to use a different definition. <laughs> so I just, I just liked that you, <laughs> you went to a different definition because I think that's important. I think that, that that's sort of the beginning of sort of, we need to look outside of just our own sort of narrow perspectives on things um, and, and start looking at others. So you used one from um, Gates and Plogg from 1980. Uh, culture is a system of shared beliefs, values, customs, behaviors, and artifacts that the members of society use to cope with their world and one another and are transmitted gener- generation to generation through learning. I, I like that definition. And it, and, it, and it sort of speaks to sort of, I think, a lot of the the uh, really neat sort of cultural conversations that are happening now. Um, I've had a lot of good ones on the podcast around sort of just different perspectives of uh, you know, intergenerational learning and learning through narrative and oral learning that we see with a lot of indigenous populations. So I just like that sort of sort of framework for kind of looking at culture. But beyond that, in in your articles, and I know, and I know these aren't all terms that you've coined, uh, but they are all referenced sort of in in varying in various places throughout the the research. Um, and I could see how, and it was one of the maybe it was Diana from the, from the podcast sort of talked about, I think she said, cause I just listened to this just this, this morning when I was having breakfast and she uh, says, this is all hard. <laughs> this is really hard work. There's a lot of stuff to know here. Right. Um, and uh, she says, um, um, and, uh, and, and, and I get it because we have, so we have, we have uh, cultural competence, I think is a phrase we've been hearing a lot. But we all, you also talk about, as in some places, cultural understanding. You talk about cultural awareness. You talk about cultural competence. Talk about cultural humility. Talk about cultural sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it almost feels like, you know, one could a- attain one of these things, maybe, um, but still be lacking in some of these other ones. Um so I guess question one, and, and and I apologize, I did not send any of these questions to you in advance. So it's okay if you don't actually have these sort of, you know, rote definitions for these terms. But can you give us an idea of what sort of the differences between some of these things are? If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is culture. Uh, Yeah, so I personally think of cultural um, competence as a goal. Um, I think that, I don't know, I would not say that I'm culturally competent because I think that that's an end point. I think I'm aware, Mm. like I'm aware that there are differences and um, I think that I seek to um, be respectful and understand these differences, which Mm. I think is more cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity. Okay, so awareness is just sort of knowing that there's... There's lots of different things happening in different cultures, um, and that um, 
and, and so that's pretty good. Um, so what's competence? Competence would be like the end goal for me where I am fully fluent and um, aware of mm. every culture. And I think an important part with all these terms is that you're not assigning a value to these differences between cultures, but more you're acknowledging them. So from culturally competent, I would say I'm fluent, can you know pretty much um, recognize all the cultural differences and similarities that exist in the world and know how to work mm. clinically with all these right. different populations. And um, that to me is like a great goal, but I don't know, at least I don't think I'll ever get there, <laughs> especially since our how we conceptualize culture is always evolving. Like all these terms yeah. coming up when I did a survey, and I think even um, when I did a survey, I think it was 2015, where we surveyed behavior mm. analyst cultural competence. We're redoing mm. that now, and the my co-authors and I had a whole discussion on do we want to keep the term competence because now mm-hmm. it seems like um, we're no longer using that and we're using culturally aware or culturally sensitive, but we decided to keep it. So, yeah, and 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 if if I remember, one of the things you've kind of found was that folks, when they're sort of you know assessing their own cultural competence, that folks thought they were. Correct. Like a lot of folks thought they were cultural, culturally competent, um, which is interesting because we're, we're saying now that cultural competence is something that, you know, really the answer should be none of us are culturally competent because it's, it, it, it's, it's a lifelong process to try to achieve this. And pretty good chance we're going to die and still not be <laughs> culturally competent. So um, at the time of the first survey, it was 55.6% of my respondents thought they were mostly competent in their evaluation mm. of their own cultural competency. And okay. I have some big, very preliminary data now. Um, mm. But I'm trying to pull it up. Um, I want to say... Um, slightly different wording, but 61.11% reported they had good, they had a good evaluation of their own cultural competency. Hmm. So that would be the second highest rating. So it was outstanding and good. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, I don't want, I don't want you to sort of make too many interpretations from, on your, from your, your current work, but. From the 2015 study, what 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 do you what, what do you sort of think that meant? Because there because I think because like you said, cultural competency needs to be not only I mean being aware of your own sort of maybe your own culture, um, which you know, I think a lot of folks aren't even aware of their own sort of you know uh, cultural norms and the things that kind of go on, but there that there are you know. You know, especially working in North America, we have a, we have a multi melting pot of sort of, of of sort of ethnicities and and cultures and groups and people from you know all all realms of the earth. And there's a pretty good chance that we're going to be working with people from you know many many cultures and many many backgrounds. And so, do you think these folks felt like they had the tools to work with all those folks? I do, um, and this is part of the reason that I was interested in revisiting this because. I felt like it was going to go two ways, either post, you know, the whole DEI movement that's been going on. People are going to realize that they 
aren't as confident as they thought they were, that they don't know as much as they thought they did. Mm -hmm. But we also have a lot more training opportunities available in DEI and ABA. So then the other side could be like, maybe people are going to feel that they're more confident because they've had additional training opportunities. Um, Mm -hmm. Something else interesting that happened was that in the original results, people said they only um, spent like one to two hours learning about, less than one to two hours learning about other people's culture and working with Mm. populations. And now that time has has increased. Mm. Also just thinking sort of um, kind of to your point. So there definitely has been a lot more training opportunities available. Mm -hmm. Um, I know personally, I mean, personally, I I think I would have, I hope, who knows what I would have said in 2015. Actually, I don't even know. Uh, I had a lot, I have a, I, 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 I've been, I recognize a lot of, you know, unconscious and, and, and sort of, um, implicit kind of biases in myself sort of in the last couple of years, which I think some, many folks are starting to pick up on. I do wonder sort of in 2015, having all those biases and sort of having a belief that I'm, you know, you know, I'm not racist because I have friends from different backgrounds Mm -hmm. and I'm not racist because, you know, I've never, you know, joined an extremist group or whatever. Um, I wonder if I would have said, you know, I'm, I'm fully competent and, and, you know, and I know enough, I I'll I'll treat everybody with respect would be sort of that phrase, a very, very, you know, kind of all lives matter sort of Mm -hmm. angle. Um, um, Whereas now, you know, being, you know, I think definitely a lot more aware, Mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 certainly of my own pieces. Um, But I, you know, having training, it, it was, it'd be interesting. So if, if folks say, you know, they have the training and, say, and and report that they feel that they're culturally competent, that's going to be problematic because that sort of speaks to what kind of training that they've had then, you know, because if, if we understand cultural competence to be sort of this lifelong journey, um, you know, much like, you know, I think competence in, in our own field, you know, we often talk about sort of, you know, imposter syndrome and things like that and you know and i think and you know personally i mean i'm not a psychologist and i can't sort of diagnose this stuff but from my perspective i think of imposter syndrome as sort of you know being a product of our own system um that sort of you know implies you know the behavior analysts are in a way kind of all knowing and behavior analysts can do anything and, and we can, we can solve any problem with just basic behavior analysis and just having the Cooper book in front of us and, you know, life will be perfect. Um, Well, so you mentioned imposter syndrome and interestingly enough, it does impact BIPOC women, women of color and especially African-American women and those in the LGBTQIA plus community. Yeah. I think what, yeah, that's what it was. So with imposter syndrome, I sort of have this perspective that, you know, part of the reason I think folks have imposter syndrome is because there's pressure from our from our sort of field for, you know, basically if you know if you know the basics of ABA, you can do anything you want and you can solve any problem in the world. Whereas I think when I see someone that say they have imposter syndrome, of course I feel for them from that sort of emotional perspective and, and the anxiety they're feeling and those sorts of things. Obviously, that's 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 um, that's that 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 that's sucky, and uh, you know, and and I know, and I want to be a support, and I want to be able to listen. But I also see that people. I also feel that people with imposter syndrome 
um, are the people that are going to turn out to be some of the best clinicians in our field, because these are the folks that are recognizing, you know, that they don't know everything um, and that there's lots more for them to learn. And I, and, and I really like when people sort of, I really like seeing like, you know, folks that are in their 60s and 70s in our field who are still have an open mind to learn new things and, and, and sort of look at things from a different perspective. Um, and so I think, you know, if our training on cultural competence can kind of hammer that in, that it's an, it's a, it's, it's not a, it's not an end you're ever going to achieve. It's a journey you're always going to be on. I think, you know, I think that'd be really good. And then hopefully people are going to answer the survey. Yes, I'll never be culturally competent because it's always a journey. Yeah. And I think what you're talking to I mean, reminds me more of humility than, than more than mm. imposter syndrome, but mm. being humble. And I think that's important. Um, yeah. When you work with families because you're going in there as a clinician, but also as a guest of the family that you're working with. So yes. while you might know everything per se about like behavior analysis, you need sure. to have an open mind and attitude to be able to learn about the family and learn about the client and you know, mm. everything else. And is that what we mean by cultural humility then? Is basically being open to the idea that, you know, you still have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to go back to okay. one other thing about imposter syndrome and um, yeah. you know women and BIPOC and the LGBTQIA plus community. And this kind of goes back to our original conversation that the reason that mm. you're that some people have imposter syndrome is because there's unequal representation and there's a lack of role models. And this is especially true, mm. you know, for BIPOC women and those in the LGBTQIA plus mm-hmm. community. And even just looking at behavior analysis, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've recently been looking at. Um, behavior analyst knowledge uh, on LGBTQA plus issues or terminology and found that that was relatively mm. low, um, which, you know, is somewhat surprising given that there's a high, high likelihood that um, an individual with autism may also identify as part of the LGBTQA plus community. So what, what kinds of things were you... Were you so? Are you doing some research in that area? Is that right? I did. Um, I'm hopefully finalizing a manuscript, <laughs> another one. Um, I did this one with a, a colleague, Dr. Rosado, and then actually one of my students. Um, so we asked um, we asked people about their if they knew what the terms sexual orientation, gender expression, gender identity, gender binary system, and gender nonconformity meant. And then we mm. asked them, um, how much training did your university provide you? Um, mm. Have you um, discussed any of these for consideration during treatment? Are you confident mm. in discussing these issues with a caregiver? Are you confident mm. in discussing these um, issues with a client without an intellectual disability? And are you um, confident mm. in discussing these issues with a client who has an intellectual disability? And, you know, in some, most universities don't cover these topics. Um, and, um, they may be, clinicians maybe have considered sexual orientation, gender expression, and gender identity during treatment. Um, but 53% of respondents did not feel competent discussing these terms with the caregiver. Hmm. That's pretty high. And, and not surprising. I mean, I, I could, I would probably say that I don't. I would probably be in that 53%. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about um, those areas. I've done one. I, 
one of the reasons I've, I've told folks, one of the reasons I do this podcast, one of the main reasons I do this podcast actually is so I can, you know, talk to people that know stuff and, and, <laughs> and learn some new things. Um, and uh, so far I've only had one guest on where we've talked about uh, issues related to sort of LGBTQA+. Um, that hasn't been released yet. That's with uh, Janine Eva Fidja, um, uh, which is fantastic interview. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to publishing that. I did learn a lot in there, but yeah, I definitely spent no time in university learning about any of this stuff. Um, um, I mean, we're lucky. I was lucky to have, from the cultural perspective, I was lucky to have, I mentioned uh, sort of uh, uh, at, at the beginning there before we started, um, or maybe when we started about Joe Lucician, uh, who's my who's my supervisor uh, and my mentor for my master's degree. Um, now, we didn't get into sort of any uh, uh, any of the kind of the, the LGBTQ gender sort of specific. Uh, topics at all but he did dig deep into sort of uh, uh, cultural pieces because a lot of his work is with primarily with um, um, Asian families um, uh, being in in, in Vancouver uh, kind of our metropolitan metropolitan area is at least at one point I believe Asian the Asian demographic had the majority in our in our population at least in, in in a couple areas i don't know if that's still the same and then i think it was white and then not far behind was uh kind of south asian east indian um uh folks so uh, really so he joe has worked a lot with a lot of um asian asian families he's done and he's he's got some i think his his i think his wife is from japan and so he's got some connections done some work in japan does some work in china done some work in singapore i believe as well and uh, so we were we were lucky to have a bit of kind of cultural sort of uh, cultural specific training in our program. But that was only because he'd been doing some research in that area. It's not sort of a standard piece. Are, are you seeing any of that happening in sort of uh, university programs these days? Pro I mean, probably not a lot on the on the uh, sort of specific to the sort of the uh, LGBTQ uh, gender pieces. And I think. And I would guess part of that is because, um, actually, we really have no idea why. But um, <laughs> uh, I was gonna, I was gonna say part of it is because it seems like most of the folks that seem to have a good, solid amount of knowledge in there in that area aren't working in academia um, right now. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of available information out there for people, but not necessarily in academia and certainly not in behavior analysis. Uh, but are, are we seeing any, any more of this now in university programs? Any of this training kind of happening? Um, I know of a couple universities that are doing some DEI training. Uh, I'm currently at Pepperdine University, and we have a required course um, that I developed called Multiculturalism and Diversity in ABA. And we cover... Mm biases, working with different SES groups, neurodiversity movement, ableism, trauma, working with translators, women in ABA, um, LGBTQA+, working with African-American clients, working with Asian clients, awesome. working with Latino clients, working with Indigenous and Arab um, clients in future directions. So we're kind of giving students, um, I mean, it's not a lot. We're giving them basically a week uh, just to touch on these different topics. So at least they have a little bit of exposure. So sorry, the course is a week or is it like a week? Uh, on it's each? like a week on each, on each right. topic. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I mean that that's still way more than 
I think what's out there. At least it gives you gives them sort of jumping off points to start sort of, you know, finding more information. I think is is probably is probably the idea there. I mean, there's no way you could have a a university course that teaches you about every culture and teaches you about every every group and what to do and how how to how to make that all happen. And in fact, even if there was such a thing, I think it could be problematic because I think it comes back to sort of your point about the the, the humility piece and that a lot of it is just you know staying present when you when you go into a family's home um and 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 you know asking questions and 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 building that relationship and sort of learning about people's culture sort of you know one-on-one for the connection and you know i think there's a problem also with sort of cultural related training is that you know we can we can easily start making assumptions about those cultures um, after the training. So today I learned about, you know, Asian folks, and now I'm going to make, now I'm going to take everything I learned in that week and apply it to every Asian family that I ever meet. Well, that's going to be problematic. Um, even, even, and I think Asian's too broad. So Japanese families, for example, you know, I can't apply what I learned about one Japanese family to every other Japanese family. Um, and so I don't think there's going to ever be sort of a, a course that sort of, answers all those questions. And I think, the, I think the training needs to sort of, you know, um, provide that framework so you can keep doing that work on your own. And I think, um, ABA needs to diversify their, um, attention on more than just race and ethnicity. I think this is another mm. reason why we're not seeing enough information come out about how to work with different populations. It could be religious. It could be, you know, LGBTQ. Yes. LGBTQA plus populations, but we're still very much yes. focused on race and ethnicity. It's true. And and do you think that, um, yeah, it's, that's really true. And do you think that's, that is, is because of sort of the George Floyd murder and sort of, and sort of that piece, because the George Floyd murder was obviously a, 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 a racist act, um, you know, born of systemic racism and, and, you know, police brutality and, you know, all that horrible stuff, but that's all, that's all clearly racism is what was, is kind of what was happening there. Uh, And so, and that was a springboard for, you know, a lot of, you know, um, you know, things, you know, nationally and internationally around Black Lives Matter in general and, and those sorts of pieces, but also for, you know, a lot of trainings and conferences and different things in our own field. And, you know, um, um, you know, so much, tons of papers came out, special issue in BAP and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but for the most part, focused on racism, all that work. And I never really thought about it that till, till you, till you said it just now that, you know, because I've always sort of been of the mind that the George Floyd murder also kind of opened up conversations about, social justice in general. Um, and that's why we're seeing, I think, a real explosion in in, in the conversation around neurodiversity right now. Um, um, because I think, and also I think because of, you know, the, the, I think George Floyd plus pandemic, mm-hmm. um, you know, because pandemic had everybody inside with nothing to do but be online and, and start, uh, you know, start taking a lot more CEUs and start reading a lot more sort of social media discussions and kind of having those conversations. You know, it, like, is it going to take like a world 
catalyzing event of, you know, someone from the LGBT community and something horrible happening to them for us to start focusing on, focusing on those areas? Is it going to take, you know, you know, a, a religious catastrophe to start focusing on that piece? Um, do you think do you think there's a connection there, or, 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 or why do you, why do you think we're so focused on racism and not these other pieces? Um, I think, well, I mean, partly I'll say maybe because it's so prevalent uh, in the media. You know, you have the George yep. Floyd. You also have all the anti-Asian hate discrimination that went on during COVID. Um, Absolutely. I think when you have something where you're looking at working with the LGBTQIA plus population, there may mm-hmm. also be strong biases and we may not be ready to to discuss you know best practices in working with that population yes um yes it's hard you know it's hard to say but i think these conversations need to happen um yeah and i think you know there's nothing wrong about addressing race and ethnicity um Mm -hmm. i think that's fine it's a good start but i think we need to at some point expand past that well, I think there's also a fear, particularly from, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, from and this is from what I've been from people I've been talking to from BIPOC folk that that folks that this is that this, this this sort of momentum and conversation is going to slowly fade away, you know, um, uh, like it like it has so many other times when something big happened um, in 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 history that led to, you know, some, some radical and important conversations but then eventually just became you know not important anymore something else became more exciting um and so i think on one hand you know certainly a lot of folks are excited to see that it's still the conversation is still happening Mm -hmm. two years later uh which isn't a lot of time two years (laughs) um you know it hasn't been still that long but you know with our media it's often you know two months later that things change and no one talks about it anymore so that's great um but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think, I think you're right about the bias piece. Um, it's, it's, it's almost what I have liked about the, the racism conversation is it seems to be, I mean, there's, there's still a lot of problems, you know, the further right you go, but it seems to be a bipartisan conversation in some ways. There do seem to be Republican folk or conservative folk in Canada or whatever that also find this stuff problematic. Um, you know, I mean, maybe their approaches aren't, you know, always the best, but they agree that, you know, they're, that, that, that changes need to happen. I still kind of feel like when it comes to sort of gender and, um, um, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and sexual orientation and those sorts of things that, it's not as even a key, even balance. Like, like it still seems to be more of a leftist sort of support for, for, for those issues. Um, and I think that speaks to kind of, like you said, the, the, the bias. There's, there's a lot of bias. There's a lot more biases that we haven't recognized in ourselves. And there was, um, you know, more recently, uh, there was some coverage on monkeypox, but not a lot of coverage. And once I started mm. reading into it, um, you know, monkeypox was affecting the LGBTQA plus community yes. more significantly than it was for um, heterosexual populations. And so I was, you yeah. know, hypothesizing in my head that maybe that's the reason that it's not getting as much attention until it started going more mainstream. And then you could get it, you know, by going to college and sitting on someone else's bed. But at the time I was... 
appalled by the numbers and the lack of, of news coverage on it? Well, it was it was much the same with the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the pandemic, you know, essentially, you know, you know, the reporting of the pandemic essentially began in China, um, you know, on some level. Um, and until, you know, the virus started spreading, you know, and infecting, you know, what Westerners, um, you know, um, it, it, it wasn't something we talked about, you know, it wasn't a big deal. I, I, I think about, we, I have had a conversation about this around even like the Ukraine war, you know, um, uh, there's been lots of wars. Mm-hmm. There's lots of, there's wars happening right now in other countries, mm-hmm. um, that aren't getting any play in the media whatsoever. Because the Ukraine war, you know, in a lot of ways has affected, you know, Western populations more. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a lot. We're seeing a lot more coverage on the Ukraine war than we're seeing on kind of other wars. Um, you know, we we you know, uh, there's a lot more discussion about how can we support Ukrainian refugees, but you know, there hasn't been a lot of discussion on how we support refugees from other countries and other problems and other areas. So it does seem like there's a, you know. There's there's a lot of a lot of bias issues that that folks aren't even close to recognizing and and don't want to and, or in fact or in fact recognize but it's not a they don't recognize it as a bias they recognize it as no no I'm right mm-hmm. <laughs> this isn't a bias this is true this is fact these people shouldn't you know and they'll use gestures or whatever shouldn't be doing those things or whatever you know be very general about sort of phrasing because they can't even say the words out loud um and this is again like the news related but i was also surprised yeah. that how little attention the hurricane in puerto rico got but how much coverage there was about um the queen's funeral i think it was at the time absolutely absolutely and of course, we're you know, I mean, we're in Canada here, where there's been you know uh, the, the the Queen example is 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 a great one because you know the you know we talk about colonization mm-hmm. all the time, and well, who colonized us? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the Queen and her and her extended family, mm-hmm. you know, essentially, um, um, and they and they colonized you know. When I say us, I mean not really us. I mean it was it was my descendants that colonized, but uh, you know my, my my families are connected to folks in the, in the UK, and they're the ones that were doing the colonizing in, in in North America as well as all over the rest of the world too. I think that's another thing that we don't even hear a lot about is sort of you know the history. You know, I think there's a lot of people that believe colonization only happened in North America. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, where, you know, I've had some really interesting conversations in particular about sort of African colonization mm-hmm. um, and some of the some of the wild stuff that's happened down there. I, I learned recently that, in, that up until. Or even maybe, maybe it's still even now that the Zimbabwe. Is is either they, they've just finished or they're still paying back the debt. Uh, owed to the UK that they got through the process of being colonized yeah. by the UK. Yeah. Um, so there's just, a, there's a lot of really wild um, kind of, kind of, kind of pieces happening there. But yeah, right. I mean, the, 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 the Queens, you know, the Queens, the Queens death and funeral got so much press, press in Canada, you know, while at the same time, you know, Truth and reconciliation in Canada with our with with our indigenous population 
is a big issue and supposed to be a sort of a dominant piece of, uh, of you know, a dominant sort of policy um, for our government. In fact, our governor general, who is basically um, a figurehead title connected to the to 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 the Commonwealth, to royalty, um, um, that sort of you know, in you know, in these bizarre sort of government ceremonies, the governor general will speak for the queen. Our governor general is actually indigenous um, this year, wow. um, and yet still, um, you know, there's there there there's really very little acknowledgement of sort of the damage that family has done to the to the peoples here. Um, but we're gonna we're we're gonna spend days and months and weeks just celebrating and, and mourning this person, you know, when, you know, who, who was, you know, essentially responsible for the genocide of so many other people that we, we have, we have yet to mourn, mm-hmm. you know, we're still digging up graves and the residential school crisis right. and all these sorts of things that, that, that were kind of happening. Um, yeah, it's wild. Um, kind of, Shifted gears a bit. You're also doing um, some work. Um, actually, before we do that, I want to go back to kind of that that original article, um, uh, the the 2013 one, which I had actually sent to the BACB and I think APBA. Um, yeah. And- with okay. an email saying, you know, obviously you don't have to take these guidelines, but I think that it is important that some guidelines are established. Mm-hmm. Um, and neither organization is really interested in that conversation. And we still don't have any guidelines now. APA came out with their guidelines in 2017, their multicultural guidelines. So the second secret word is mindfulness. Yep. Maybe one day we'll have them, but yeah. Well, you've already answered my question yeah. because you 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 you, uh, you proposed. Um, um, uh, well, first you, you discussed. First, you kind of you referenced uh, this uh, the national standards on culturally and linguistically appropriate services. Um, what what is that first? Before I kind of talk about what what you found from them. Um, so I had to say that was actually Dr. Tanaka. She, her background okay. is as a linguist, I want to say. Um, mm. So that was more which one of her contributions. Gotcha. Okay. Well, she, she, it's, it, she says in the article that the, 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 this, this national, these national standards provide 14 standards of culturally and linguistically, I guess, linguistically appropriate services that should be integrated through an organization in partnership with the communities being served. And and there's and I'm not going to read them all, but there's like, there's 12 standards here, I think, or maybe a little more um, that um, 14 standards mm-hmm. here that um, um, uh, that that seem you know pretty 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 like pretty good ones mm-hmm. you know like I'll just read number one uh, healthcare organizations should ensure that patients receive um, from all staff members effective understandable and respectful care in a manner compatible with their cultural health beliefs practices and preferred language and. Those themes continue in each other's standard, kind of getting kind of more specific to sort of different areas of service. And then you proposed, was it, was it, and I can't, I've lost the third page, but I think you proposed six or seven standards based on those. Seven standards. Uh, yep. Seven standards, that's right. Um, and so you brought those to the BACB and, and, uh, and uh, was it ABAI? You said? A- APBA. APBA. And... And was that sort of just after this article was written or? 
Yes. It was like right and, around and the so, same time just to share with them, and, you know, consider these or something similar. And, and what was the response? Was it sort of thank you? Thank you, but no we'll, thank you. We'll, 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 we'll think about it and you never heard back right. from you again sort of thing. Right. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so fast forward uh, nine years and you're saying we still don't have any standards of, of that form in, in any organization in our field. Right. Like it kind of puzzles me, you know, when I'm surveying behavior analysts about their cultural competency, but we don't even have that defined as a field. So how do you yes. how do you actually know what what practices are culturally sensitive, culturally aware, you know, make you a culturally competent behavior analyst? Yes. So we're just kind of going with, you know, our own definitions, our own varied definitions for that. Yeah, it's fair enough. I mean, uh, and, and I was, uh, I'm, I'm working on a, I'm working on writing an ethics code for a company mm-hmm. um, with another, with a, uh, another colleague, actually, uh, she's the one from Zimbabwe that told me all about that. Um, she's going to be on the podcast eventually. Uh, to talk more about it, and uh, but she's also from the. Uh, she also leads the t- the our, uh, so our, our company provides kind of positive behavior support services in one wing, and then sort of customized supportive employment services in another wing. And she kind of leads that side, and so we wanted to have someone from both sides um, to sort of develop this ethics code, and. It's been a really interesting project. Um, we started. It started by just sort of let's just copy the BACB code and then and then you know fill in the gaps. And we realized quite quickly that that's not the way to do it. Um, um, and that the you know the the BACB code has a lot of sort of you know systemic and foundational uh, problems of its own, which I'm not going to get into today. But um, but one thing we started doing was okay, let's start looking at other fields and seeing what they have in place. And it's quite amazing, like you said, to see like we looked at like we looked at psychology uh, we looked at social work uh we looked at a few and they all have these full-on you know b- bound and published uh, standards standards of competence and, and or or guidelines or whatnot for you know essentially cultural competence cultural humility that are that are that look like they're really thought out of even and even even more specifically we were looking at, we looked at sort of, um, we were trying to, because what we we're trying to do is we we're trying to find some some ethics codes examples that don't come from, you know, um, essentially Western, westernized uh, groups or or, 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 or or from the dominant culture group. Um, uh, and we also noticed, you know, <clears throat> now it's great that, that uh, ABA, ABA now has BABA um, mm-hmm. as sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, as sort of a, a group to sort of, you know, advocate and and uh, and and support um, you know, uh, black behavior analysts and other and other individuals of color. Um, and you know, to a lesser extent, there is a Latino uh, behavior analysis association. That's pretty much it that, that I that I could kind of find. Uh, I think there might be a couple of. I mean, there certainly are like you know, it's just like the Haitian society. There's certainly like certain countries have you know, there's Caribbean society and so on and so forth, but. But as far as sort of anyone developing, you know, sort of kind of major documents and whatnot. But then I look over at psychology and there's like a whole there, there's there's the black psychologist, there's mm-hmm. the Asian psychologist, there's the soul, and, and they all have all of this documentation and policies and, and sort of things kind of put together um, to, to, to kind of really do the work. So one thing that you, you mentioned 
I, I feel like this interview in a lot of ways is sort of like a before and after interview. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping to do several of these with you throughout <laughs> the years because I think I think you're gonna you're the you're you're the one person that really has a pulse on sort of you know what changes have been made in our field as as we've been going along. And it sounds like not many have been so far, um, even though you've been doing this work for nine years or longer, ten years. Um, and uh, um, and so it's. It's uh, it's just it's just it's just wild that 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 we don't have you know any of this stuff in place yet. I agree. Uh, yeah, and, and and any thoughts on why? I mean, it seems because it seems like there has been a lot of work. There seems there has been a lot, of, like, or or at least what the barriers are. Like what 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 needs to happen in order for us to kind of you know have some of these things in place. Um, I think that there are still behavior analysts who believe that behavior is universal and that DEI mm. issues don't really matter if you're creating a good behavior analytic program then you're already taking into consideration individual variables like race, like mm. culture, things like that. Um, I know that when I first started publishing in the area um, there weren't a lot of journals that were open to publishing DEI topics. Um, yeah. so I think that's a reason, um, ABAI now has their DEI board, um, that I remember on. Mm -hmm. So we first started, I think it was like a panel discussion and then it turned into a task force mm -hmm. and now, um, we're a recognized board and, and maybe some of these are issues that we're going to discuss. You know, right now, one of mm -hmm. the ones that we're trying to solve is that the invited speakers at ABAI are not compensated for their presentations. Like our BF Skinner um, mm. awardees are, but our invited presenters are not. And we've had some um, people who have declined our invitation. And one of the reasons that they cite is that it's really a DEI issue that not everyone can afford to become a member, to travel to the conference, to present, and really some financial support should be given to them because it makes it mm -hmm. um, unfair for that those of us who can afford to become a member, to travel, to go to the conference, we're going to be the ones mm -hmm. that are speaking at these conferences. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's not like people are looking for a $5,000 speaker fee. They're just looking for, you know, at, at least fly me there and put me up. Um, or pay for and, my and conference registration, like something. Yeah, and, well, all of it. <laughs> pay, like pay for, pay, make it so that me getting from A to B doesn't cost me anything. I'm not looking for an extra bonus out of this. I didn't realize that the 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 the, the even the invited folks don't really get any of that. Some do, um, not all. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so, I don't know anything about this this group. So, tell me a little bit more about this this what what this is because I've heard I've heard of so okay I've heard of obviously the multicultural alliance that you that you started. Um, I didn't realize until I listened to the ABA Inside Track episode that that was that is now the cultural diversity sig. I didn't realize those were one and the same and and connected. Uh, I heard I heard a little bit post George Floyd about this ABA task force, um, um, and then I haven't heard a thing since. <laughs> uh, now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean yeah. that doesn't mean few folks aren't putting putting information out there. Maybe I'm just not getting it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely open to, you know, me just being ignorant on my own. That's, 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 that's cool. Uh, but, but uh, what, what, what is it now? What is it called now? Um, is the ABA task force the same thing 
um, now this? Like, what, what's what, what's going on? No, oh, so um, <laughs> I think it was 2011 that I founded the Multicultural Alliance of Behavior Analysts. And then um, that got rebranded a couple of years ago as the Culture and Diversity SIG. So that's a special mm. interest group of um, ABAI. Then mm. um, what I'm on is the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Board of ABAI. Mm. So our mission is to foster and develop an inclusive, equitable, and just environment for all individuals and groups within the audience and practice of behavior analysis and beyond. Um, so mm. we have a couple of um, awards that we give to both students and clinicians for doing research in this field to help, you know, hopefully mm. move ahead um, in looking at DEI mm -hmm. issues within a ABA. Okay. And, and how long has that been around? I want to say 2000 and the, the actual board, I'm going to say 2000. Before that, like I said, we had the panel discussion and then the task force and then it officially became a board. So 2000? 2018, so sorry, 2018. Oh, okay. <laughs> 2000, 2000, maybe around 2018. Right. And... and and who's who's on this board? Um, so I'm uh, the co-coordinator along with Dr. Giovanni yep. Esper Leal, and then we have a couple board members: um, Dr. Fuqua, I think Dr. Hans, Dr. Kwok, mm. Dr. McSweeney, um, and I think Dr. Buburn, maybe Burn. Um, so we had a couple oh, yeah. people. Um, their term was up, so we just had elections and. Um, May, Nicole, and Daniel are our new board members. Nice. I just had May on the podcast too, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. She was she was delightful. Um, and so does this does this board also look at sort of uh, like ABI systems, like the internal systems as well, or, or is anyone looking at that? We've had some discussions about it. Um, Dr. Jamal Watson brought up about voting and something with the period when that's open um, for voting, it doesn't always align with um, like membership. So it makes it's a little bit biased and then who can vote yep. on some of these issues. So that was brought up. Yeah. Um, we did give input on conversion therapy and practices mm -hmm. as well. That was in 2021. Yeah. Um, we had some diversity data come out from the 2021, both convention attendees and membership, which was kind of exciting. Mm. But we're yeah. hoping now, yeah. um, you know, we have a, we have a, we're going to have a round table, which is not a typical ABAI format of presentation, but we really want to get input from um, ABAI members or people from the community mm -hmm. about where they'd like to see future directions of the board to go, um, mm -hmm. what issues are important to them. Um, and that will be at the 2023 convention. Yeah. Well, that sounds promising. Yeah, I think we'd really like uh, to know. see more action. Like, it's great yeah. that we've had these award winners and that we're seeing more research or recognizing more researchers in DEI, but I think the board's kind of feeling, okay, what else can we do? What's next? What are the important issues? Yeah. And I feel like it's those systemic issues that are, are probably the biggest ones. I mean, you know, 
I feel like sometimes, you know, and I'm not saying that this is what you, you folks were doing, but, you know, things like just giving, well, let's give someone an award then, you know, it seems almost like a bit of a Band-Aid, you know, for, you know, but doesn't solve sort of all the problems that everyone else is having sort of, you know, uh, in terms of sort of accessing, um, you know, resources and supports and whatnot and, and, and being a part of that organization. Right, because nor do um, we pay for them to come and present their research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah well, exactly exactly i mean and 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 i think you know and, and, and it is daunting it's very daunting to deal with systemic change and i and i and it's and it's not for the faint of heart it, it it's it uh you know it you know again quote poorly quoting the the aba inside track host it's a lot of work yeah. um um and um um and 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 and, so, and it's sort of a domino effect. I know, like again, when we're working on this ethics code, which is just you know a policy for one single organization, you know that that there are many examples of. We're finding that every time we come up with sort of a code item, we're now having to tear apart thirty different policies in the organization. We're now having to develop policies for other things that didn't exist we're now having to look at our recruitment look at our hiring practices look at where we advertise look at look at how we empower you know folks to go to college to take the training to get the job you know like there's just so many layers of that system that are so problematic and i feel like you know you know, a powerhouse organization like ABAI or the BACB are the only ones that are going to be able to sort of, you know, um, well, I shouldn't say the only ones, but have the ability to make some really powerful and, you know, and influential positive changes for our field, for, for getting more folks in our field, for getting more research looked at and so on and so forth. And yet it seems like, it seems like no one wants to do the work. One thing I heard sort of come out of, you know, um, you know, our local chapter, and this was a few term, a few boards back, but was, well, we're all volunteers, <laughs> you know, we're just volunteers. We can't do all this work. Um, and, you know, I mean, well, you volunteered to do this. Work. Um, <laughs> and so, but I, but I don't think people really expect, I don't, I, I just, it, it, it almost, it seems, I know this seems really kind of cynical, but it seems, it seems almost impossible to sort of, you know, really make the changes that our field needs to see. And I think this is why we're sort of seeing, this is probably one of the reasons we're seeing, and I don't know what the numbers are like. I mean, only the only ABI can tell us. But we're seeing a lot of folks talk about revoking their memberships now and I just not bothering that. to be, not bothering to be a part of ABAI anymore. You know, and I have, I have, you know, a, a variety of thoughts on that. I definitely see the sort of the message of boycotting, um, and let's move our support to sort of other groups. Um, you know, I certainly um, am trying to do that more as far as support other groups. Um, you know, I joined Baba want to be able to kind of support in that way. And, um, but I also know that if you leave these organizations, then they're never going to change. If all the people that want change leave, then there's never going to be any change. Mm -hmm. Um, and these, and, and, and these are the folks that are going to continue to have the input on the VCS. And mm -hmm. I heard there's some talk or maybe of, 
you know, some folks have suggested maybe we just shouldn't have the VCS anymore, you know. And I don't know. I mean, there's just, I, I don't know all the components. I really can't speak intelligently about ABAI and their bylaws and their policies. I know very little about them. Um, but, um, but I, uh, you know, and, and, really, and again, I don't know if there's a question here. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, do, do you see any sort of you know, motivation within the organization, um, you know, to, to do this kind of work? Um, you know, I think that the founding of the board and these different grants are at yeah. least a, a step in a direction. I agree that yeah. when it comes to being more inclusive and more aware and more sensitive, it, and it is overwhelming. To think about yeah. like where do you even start you know so sometimes yeah. it's like do a task analysis and figure out like everything that you want to get done um in order for you to feel like you are having a more culturally sensitive culturally aware mm -hmm. culturally confident you know whatever your term mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. term that you prefer to use is going on yeah yeah yeah, interesting it's yeah it's, I, I think i think we just have to keep kind of having these conversations and keep Keep trying, you know, um, uh, but I, but I also see, you know, um, but it's interesting your, your comment about sort of you, you know, it wasn't just the ABAI that you shared, you, you shared these standards with. There, it was other groups as well, other groups that seem to be maybe at least a little more inclusive or seem to have a little less barriers. And yet they're still not kind of. Uh, interested in, in, in moving things forward. Have you I, I don't know how how I know you're you're pretty in depth in ABAI, are you familiar with whether other organizations have started to make any of these kind of moves in our field whatsoever? I haven't seen anything, so I'm not aware. Like, I don't think APBA yeah. has done anything, ABAI, BACB. I mean, BACB just yeah. did their new ethics, and they do talk about self-awareness, and there's a little bit more about culture in there, which, you know, yeah. any, any, any progress is still progress, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's self-aware. You talked about mindfulness earlier, and, and mindfulness being sort of one of these skills that I think can be really that you that you say can be really you know useful in sort of recognizing one's own biases. I feel like this is this is one of the this is the biggest this is the big piece is is the recognition of your own bias. You know, I think because it, as long as you don't recognize it, you just keep trucking forward with your agenda. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and so I'm wondering what, and, and, and I think you probably, you probably have had some experience with this, with just the course that you have, you offer at Pepperdine is, 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 is there a training? Is there an intervention? Is there something we can do for professionals that, that helps them do that, helps them sort of be, be, feel safe or feel vulnerable enough to admit that sort of thing. I mean, for me personally, and, and I've shared this story and I don't mind sort of sharing some of my personal story. It wasn't just George Floyd that sort of did this for me. I mean, George Floyd was the catalyst, uh, but also I've spent you know, I, I had a, you know, I had an interesting life kind of growing up and I've spent a lot of years in therapy as a result. Um, and, um, and I've done a lot of work on myself and, 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 
I think it was somewhat of a coincidence that I had completed a lot of that good work on myself and, and, and sort of, and, 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 and built some skills and mindfulness and so on and so forth right around 2020. So when that happened, um, you know, I was ready for it, you know, and, and I was ready to, and I, I you know, it, it, took me, it took me like three days to admit I was willfully ignorant and that I had actually treated so many people horribly, you know, growing up that I had not realized or, and so on and so forth. So point being is, you know, I did a lot of that work myself already and therefore was able to start recognizing my own biases, but there's so many other people that just aren't maybe in that state. Yeah. I think um, a couple of things. So I think it's one thing to say that we all have biases and that's, you know, I discussed that and I think Hayes um, was talking or someone had said that. And I think that's true that we all have yeah. biases. So I, I can easily say, Oh, I, I'm biased. I have biases. But then to actually do the work into identifying what they are, I think causes a little bit of cognitive dissonance because we believe that, you know, we're good people and that we treat everyone yeah. fairly and with respect. But then to have to admit to ourselves, well, maybe we try to, but we are biased. And here's how my biases manifest themselves. Makes us feel mm. a little bit uncomfortable. So I think it's mm -hmm. about getting more okay with being uncomfortable because I think that's where yes. growth comes from. And I think you you really hit the nail on the head because it's that it's one phrase that's you know was I think repeated a lot, particularly in some of the early kind of when I say early, sort of the, the early post-Floyd sort of you know trainings and 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 workshops and and sort of symposiums that kind of came out um, was you know, there was a couple of phrases. One, one, which I think is getting a little overused now was sort of listen and learn. I'm listening and learning. I'm listening and learning. You know, that's great in the beginning, but eventually you're going to do something else besides listen and learn. Uh, but, uh, but the other one was, you know, being able to sit with your discomfort and, and that being okay. And, and in fact, the fact that you're uncomfortable with this is a good thing. It means you're not a sociopath. Mm -hmm. um, and it means, you know, uh, there's something about this that bothers you, whether, you know, and, 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 and so now, and, and I've sort of now learned over time now, when I start getting that weird feeling in my gut during a conversation, maybe after I've said something that I wasn't sure I should say, or, 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 well, it's usually after that, um, <laughs> but, um, um, or something like that, that I'm like, okay. Or, or someone says something that, you know, sort of, you know, breaks down a perspective that I had and, and, and is something completely, you know, it just sort of destroys that, that angle and says, you know, no, this is the way I should be looking at things. Yeah, and I get that feeling. I now don't look at that and, you know, sort of run away and hide. I now go, huh, sit with my discomfort. This, this is, this is something I need to reflect now. I need to, I need to think more about this and to learn more about this. And so in a way we can kind of tap that feeling, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, of discomfort and, and, you know, define it a little more for folks. Um, and then, you know, and I think maybe this is why we're starting to see a lot of, uh, of sort of act kind of work being used sort of around biases and not in some of the early, some of the early RFT kind of uh, trainings that folks are working on to kind of conceptualize sort of uh, changing biases and whatnot. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, I wonder if there's a way we can, you know, use that discomfort, um, you know, in, in a, in a, you know, in a practical way, in a required way like in our trainings, in, in, a, in our university trainings to sort of 
shape sort of, you know, bias recognizing behaviors. The third secret word is bias. Yeah. Um, I teach an ethics course and I tell the students, you know, once you get to the point where you think that you're never going to create, um, engage in unethical behavior, that's when I'm going to start being concerned about you uh, engaging in unethical mm. behavior because you're ruling out that possibility. And I think it's similar with biases. So if you sit here and think that you have no biases, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you have them. And maybe you're not at the stage where you're ready to explore them further. But I think you have to be open to that possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. But how do we help people that don't recognize that get there? I think it depends on, you know, like if you're going through a training program and you have a supervisor, I think that talking about Mm. this in supervision Mm. might be important. Um, You know, I Mm -hmm. I've had a different experience just being a minority, you know, where I've experienced racism and sexism and all these sorts of things in clinical practice that maybe some people haven't. And I think they've been interesting to explore in supervision, um, Mm. like how to handle them. Um, I think that a lot of organizations are also doing DEI trainings. We're seeing, you know, webinars and things like that. And why that's yes. really useful, um, the trainings that are going to be more effective for diversity trainings are going to be um, four to six hours. And they're going to be, it's going, you're going to have multiple trainings. So it's not like you attend a one hour webinar and now yes. you've changed, you're woke. It's continuing to, to work on yourself and self-awareness. Yeah. I mean, some of the things I've been even seeing in sort of organizations that I've been working with where we're starting to see some of those trainings is there's actually pushback now. We don't want all this training. Mm-hmm. We don't want to keep talking about DEI stuff. It's depressing. <laughs> it's making me sad. Um, you know, it's uh, it's triggering a memory I had about something else. And these aren't people, these are typically people that don't sort of identify with sort of uh, a minority group. Um, um, And so, yeah, you know, and I I think one message that I have heard from, you know, some of the, some of the trainers out there is that, well, maybe those aren't the people you want to focus on. Um, uh, You know, maybe, 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 maybe there's just some folks that, you know, maybe putting too much effort into trying to change person A who's never going to change their opinion potentially and focus your energy on person B who is, is, you know, starting to recognize things. I don't know. Yeah. I think people are in different stages of their awareness. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, for the example that you just gave, it's important to be able to recognize the privilege that you have, that you don't yeah. have to, you know, live your life being discriminated against that you can decide to shut it off and not attend a training or complain that's too much totally. training. And I'm guilty of that with, you know, when George, George Floyd events happened, my social media was blowing up with opinions from lots of different people. You know, I think it's important to surround okay. yourself with uh, a diversity of people. So I have all yes. sorts of people on my social media, some that I don't actually talk to, but I <laughs> find their posts, um, interesting because they're so different from mine and it just got like yeah. message and it was just like flooded and all i wanted to do was to not open facebook not open instagram not open anything just mm. to kind of escape it 
because it was it was too much for me to deal with. And yeah. then I realized, like, how privileged am I that I can just shut this off in my life when other people are experiencing this like every day? So I kind of forced mm-hmm. myself to, you know, stay on. Maybe I went on a little bit less, but it was kind of a eye-opening moment that I, you know, I can just decide to not engage and decide to ignore this. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing we talked about in our pre-chat um, uh, was the current research you're doing right now. And we talked about um, something I don't normally do, uh, not for any particular reason, just because just I just feel like I have to publish the podcast the podcast that I that I did the earliest. Um, um, we talked, we talked about, I'm going to try and get this, this episode out like this week. Um, so as soon as we, as soon as we hang up, I'm going to start editing, uh, which normally I, I would hang up and start editing a podcast I did three months ago. Um, uh, reason being is you're, you're working on, a, on, on, and we touched on it a bit right now, but you're working on some research right now that kind of, um, um, you know, uh, uh, takes a look at some of the stuff you looked at uh, a few years back. Um, uh, uh, and so maybe just, uh, you we already touched on a little bit, but maybe tell us a little more in detail about that study. Uh, and then the hope is that uh, everyone who's listening when this comes out uh, this Friday, so today's November 1st, this episode's going to be out on the 4th, uh, um, how they can sign up and so on and so forth. All, all, all those all those good deeds. Sure, uh, and we'll all have it all, we'll all, all written in the show notes too, of course. So this is a needs assessment to better understand BACB certificate self-reported cultural competency. So the participants are going to complete a brief demographic questionnaire. It's about 14 questions and then 23 mm. questions about their perceived level of cultural competency. It shouldn't take mm. too long to complete. We're saying 15 or 20 minutes. Um, it will be anonymous. You can enter to win um, one of two Amazon gift cards. If you choose to enter that mm. information, it will be kept separate from the data um, from the survey. And mm-hmm. um, the survey is available via Qualtrics. Um, so I can give mm-hmm. you the website to share as well, yeah. since it's multiple Perfect. letters and numbers. <laughs> so <laughs> reflecting on this discussion that we've had now, um, uh, are a bunch of folks going to answer that question differently after listening to this episode? They might. I yeah. I mean, who <laughs> who knows? Or maybe, <laughs> or maybe not. Um, you know, I, I am interested just to see where certificates feel that they are and there's i mean i think from the survey we can get a lot of different different data you know like we could look Mm at um do certain races of people are they rating themselves as more culturally confident versus other races Mm -hmm. of people and that would be interesting to look at yeah totally um, we have seen so really, really far where a higher percentage, and again, like our numbers are pretty low for the current survey, are reporting that they have made um, changes to their programming based on culture versus when mm. we originally did the survey. Mm. Really cool. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there because I think I want this to be the final note for folks so, they, so that they, uh, you know, sort of hang up and uh, and, uh, and and fill out the survey. That's good. Uh, so, and, and I hope that, uh, you know, uh, we can stay in contact and I can have you back when that study comes out so we can share the results of their Definitely. That'd be, I'd love that. That'd be amazing. Wicked. Well, Liz, thanks so much for being on the show. No, thanks for having me. Cheers. Yeah.